You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about custody issues in primary care. Joining me is Sarah Kurlancic, who's a social worker in the Child Care Network at the Carabot Center. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Katie. So I'm just going to start off with a little bit of a disclaimer, which is that neither Sarah or I are lawyers. Exactly. This is not intended to be legal advice for any particular patient or family, and any provider who has such a question should contact either their own or institutional lawyer or risk management services. So I'm just going to put that out at the start, but we're going to do our best to answer some of the custody issues that frequently come up in primary care. So in terms of sort of thinking about these issues preventively or prophylactically, what tips can we give newly separated parents in terms of easing the transition for their child or children? Well, I think first we have to help parents acknowledge that this can take, this can be really hard. Mm -hmm. And it can be really, it can take a lot of uh, self-control and discipline to be constructive. Right. I think that um, they have to realize that they might have to pull something very special out of themselves when emotions are running high. Maybe uh, both parents feel they have good reasons to be angry. They have uh, real grievances. Um, Feelings are hurt, whatever the issue is going on. Um, Somehow they have to... I, I think it's a good place. I think it's good to own it mm-hmm. and then put it aside. Right. Because uh, once you've owned it, then you've got to keep it to yourself. So um, it's, I think it's easier to uh, mindfully keep it to yourself once you've owned it. So you can do that intentionally. Um, you want to uh, avoid arguing in front of your children. Mm-hmm. You want to... Do be, be your best self, uh, try to be polite and respectful mm-hmm. when talking about or to your ex-partner. Right. You want to try to take a problem-solving approach and um, work a problem, try to find solutions for things. Um, you need to do everything in your power to keep your children's routines intact and familiar. Mm-hmm and let them know that they are not involved in the problem. The problem is not about them. And then focus on positive uh, relationships with your children and time with your children, and let that be the case for your former partner, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So visible conflict, heated discussions, legal talk, away from the children, out of their earshot when they're not around. That Maybe that needs to be set-aside time. Maybe that needs to be with um, a mediator or a couple's counselor, not because you're working on getting back together, but because you're working on separating. Right. And um, minimizing the disruptions to the routines, get the negativity um, away from the kids, and um, remember that each parent is going to be involved in, in the children's lives and try to make that good. The other thing is you, I think you have to be careful not to... Uh, and process all these discussions with friends and family members around your children, right. Um, right. on the phone with people, um, in the next room with people with the kids or in the house. I think there, it takes a, it, it's not easy 
Kids are always listening. Kids are always listening. Mm -hmm. So occasionally parents ask us to write letters or sometimes even testify in court for their custody disputes. So what should or shouldn't we do in this situation and what's our role in this process? Well, first, we're not obligated to write a letter or to participate because a parent has asked us. We right. can refer them to the medical record. We can, you know, they can get a copy of the medical record right. and find the information that they think they need in that. Um, we don't have to write a letter that then might lead to testimony. If we get an actual subpoena, then um, within CHOP, of course, we would consult our legal resources. There are, you know, procedures around that, and right. that would be true, I guess, in most offices. Um, but apart from that, let's say we do get a subpoena, or we need to remember that we cannot know the whole story. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to be pulled into acting as a character witness for one side or the other. We need to be really careful to stay within our scope. Right. Um, and if a parent is really asking for a custody evaluation, there are behavioral health professionals in the community that actually provide that. Mm -hmm. And that's where they probably need to be going for that. I think, like you said, that's an important mm -hmm. point for us to remember because we do know these families so well often that we may have a gut instinct about which household the child might be better in, but that's not really our role to be making those decisions. And, and right. if we have to be careful about how we uh, communicate with parents in terms of our endorsement of their custody battle. We have to combine anything that we write or say to what we really, really know and what's within our scope right. about um, the, the medical care, the medical management, things that we have uh, documented in the chart, mm -hmm. right. you know. So in the office, we need a parent or guardian to consent for immunizations, but what do we do when the parents disagree? Well, again, I'm not an attorney, right. so I'm not going to be speaking as an attorney on that. I think that um, from my perspective, we want to be thinking about our relationship with the family. Mm -hmm. And so we want to honor each parent's questions and perspectives and the concerns they have and be available to talk those things through. Um, in a true medical emergency, we might only need the consent of one of those parents. But if it's not a true medical emergency, and I don't think people usually think of immunizations that way, mm -hmm. then we probably ought to maybe, you know, give it a minute, wait, and see, you know, if we can really sort of address the concerns and help the parents to talk it out between themselves and to, we need to give our best medical advice and sort of play that out. We can involve social workers in the office when those are available. Mm -hmm. um, if the parents are actually actually legally separated and there is family court involvement around custody and that kind of thing, they can take that to court. Mm -hmm. Right. I um, think that's a great point is that parents mm -hmm. can uh, use their lawyers to put into their custody agreement things like medical decision making and who's going to own that and whether it's shared or not. Right, and if that's not specified mm -hmm. in the legal document, and we should have a habit of, when these things come up, of knowing about the, what it says in the legal document, right. then we need to honor both parents' right. perspectives. 
Occasionally, parents will have more heated arguments in clinic. So what are some tips about how we as providers can de-escalate things and help keep everyone safe in the clinic? That can be really hard, depending on how escalated it is, and if the escalated folks involved are able to hear us right. in the moment. Um, we want parents to feel respected and heard and um, involved. We want to honor their involvement. But they also, we also want to make it clear to them that our clinic has got to be a safe, child-friendly environment for every family that happens to be there with their children coming to see the doctor. And that um, we have to be able to examine their child and complete their office visit and, and deal with that matter at hand. Mm -hmm. So when there are arguments happening that go beyond that, um, we sometimes have to try to separate parents. We might need to even call in security. Mm -hmm. um, that I would hope not, but that happens. Right. Um, need to try to let both parents know that, that you know we want them to help us complete this visit and focus on their child. Mm -hmm. If uh, it becomes a real safety concern, an actual safety concern in the office, then um, again, we might need to call uh, some backup from security or somebody like that. And, mm -hmm. and we might not be able to complete our business in the clinic right. at that time. And as a last resort, if it's really an ongoing problem, we might even have to invoke the visitor restriction policy, and there mm -hmm. is a whole set of procedures around that. Mm -hmm. right. There might need to be a plan about how to manage those visits. We might need to sit down in a separate time, ideally without the child, honestly. The child is witnessing this. Right. So it's, it's becoming awkward at that point to try to get any any health care done. Right. Occasionally patients present to the office with an extended family member or an older sibling. So can this person assume consenting abilities of a parent since they were sent by the parent? Well, in general, the parent should be the ones making the decisions, even if they're not there. So that can be, that can depend on the circumstances and on the provider, really. I mean, what what's the history there? What do we know about the parent's decisions right. and who this person is? Is this the first time we've ever seen this child and they're just coming in with somebody who identifies as a next-door neighbor helping out the mom? Right. Or is this a long-standing relationship and this has been a, a helpful person in the family that's been involved and we know that and we know what the parent's perspective is on giving that flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. Can we get the parents on the phone? Right. Uh, but I, you know, we do, we do need to realize that the parents are the ones making the decisions. There is, now this is an ongoing thing, and there's, there's an alternate person that really is bringing the child to health care appointments. We do have medical consent authorization form mm -hmm. that a parent can fill out and give authorization for a third party mm -hmm. to provide consent. And we do use that sometimes. Good. And I think what we touched on before is there's also a difference between routine care but and urgent care. And so there's That's some right. clinical judgment that comes into play there in that if a child is acutely ill and comes in in anyone's guardianship, um, we would take care of the patient first. That's right. That's right. After we file with DHS, or depending on where listeners are, a similar um, child protective service, 
What information about the family situation might they ask us for, or do they collect all the information on their own from in-home observations? Well, I think that sometimes a um, child protective services worker um, are making fewer home visits than we think they might be making. Mm. In reality, I've found that to be the case. Right. Also, um, parents will not always reveal. They, they might present a certain way in front of a uh, child protective services worker and not minimize or deny or not reveal things that we know are major concerns. Um, so we can't, if, we're, if, if, if things have come to a point where we're filing a child line report in good faith because we have real safety concerns for that child, then I think we have a responsibility to provide the full information that's relevant. So um, that would be, that could be all sorts of things, things about the family situation, certainly the family's management of the health care right. um, and the care plan. Um, any, if there's history of mental health, domestic violence, substance abuse that we know. Right. Um, parenting concerns that we, that we have experienced that we know. Like safety risks. And safety risks, anything about the living situation that we, that we know that is a safety concern. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't not disclose that. Uh, right. That's part of the report. That's part of what the Child Protective Services um, investigators need to do. They need to have that information to conduct their investigation and make decisions. Yeah. Right. Um, we see a number of children who are in foster care. So who provides consent when the child is in foster care? Is it the biologic parent, the foster parent, the CUA, the DHS worker? And what do we do if there's disagreement between these groups? Um, the kinship and foster parents um, do not have authority to consent to treatment. Okay. If, uh, unless the parental rights are terminated, and sometimes that's the case, but most of the time we're going to find it's not. Right. Then the DHS will want the parents or the legal guardian, the person who had been the legal guardian, to provide that consent. And they will go to some pretty strenuous efforts mm -hmm. to make that happen. Okay. Now, if they can't locate the biological parent or the biological parent refuses, won't be involved, you know, can't happen, then they will usually ask us to complete a form explaining what needs, you know, what the medical care is or the surgical care, whatever it is that needs to happen, mm -hmm. and then they'll take that to family court and get a court order. When a child shows up in the office with only their DHS worker, can that DHS um, employee provide consent for things like immunizations? Essentially, yes. Mm -hmm. The DHS worker or the cool worker in Philadelphia can accompany a child and provide consent. And actually, it's the foster parent right. or the kinship parent can bring a child for routine care. Right. Now, if it's not routine care, if it's, if it's invasive, and there are some things that are specified about what's not considered routine care, mm -hmm. then what I said before comes into play. They're going to want the bio parent right. to provide consent for those things. But more, more commonly, what we see in primary care is them coming in for routine care with exactly. workers. So it's routine labs, routine immunizations, um, routine antibiotics for their ear infections, things like that. Now, for um, medications, uh, sometimes uh, will be stalled because uh, the system will want parents to give consent for medications. Now, we would you would still prescribe what you right. need to prescribe, but then there might be 
on the back end. Trouble getting it from the pharmacy and well, not that. probably like, they probably could pick it up from the pharmacy, but um, a bio parent might dispute uh, Adderall. Got it. Or some some right. script that that we're prescribing. That's something that 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 DHS is going to have to negotiate. So an ADHD medication actually brings up an interesting point because the um, DHS and foster parent may want that child to be medicated for their behavioral problems, whereas a biologic parent might not. But you're saying that we would do what we think is in the patient's best medical interest and let DHS sort out the disagreement between the various parties in terms of actually giving the medicine to the patient. As a social worker and not an attorney, yes, um, it would seem to me that the physician really needs to recommend what they think is best for that patient and their best medical judgment. Right. And then if it needs to go to court, then that's where it's going to go for the consent. I mean, you might be asked to explain your medical judgment. Great. You know. That's a helpful point to clarify. So I'm very lucky to have a social worker in my office, and I know uh, many of us at CHOP do have access to social workers, but they may not be in their office, um, and they may be more uh, remote. So for those of us who don't have a social worker, what resources does CHOP have for the care network offices? Well, the Department of Social Work is available to every corner of CHOP. Mm-hmm. So even if you don't have a social worker assigned to your practice, um, anybody at CHOP can call the Department of Social Work, 215-590-2072, and explain that you have a concern about something that needs social work involvement or attention. And um, obviously, sometimes things go to the Office of General Counsel or Office of Risk Management. Right. But... Okay, so we can always call social work if we need them. You can, absolutely. That's expected. Great. And like you said, consulting your own legal resources. And then I would imagine also your local Department of Health, um, in some cases, like in in the foster care situation, might be helpful in terms of walking you through some of the intricacies of your state policy. That's absolutely true. And if you have something that you think might be a safety concern for that child, a potential abuse or neglect situation, you can always call your county children and youth agency and um, ask them. That Now, that's not a formal report. The right. formal report is through Childline. Mm-hmm. But you can call and say, you know, Informally, it's very informal. Right. Nobody's giving you real advice there about what to do. Right. But you can run it past somebody. Well, thank you for shedding some light on some of these very tricky situations. Um, we know that they're also highly individualized, um, and so people may have more questions. You can look at our website, which is www.chop.edu/pcppodcast. We'll link to some of the articles and things that you mentioned, as well as uh, Childline, so people have a nice link there. Um, but thank you so much for everything that CHOP Social Work does for us in the CARE Network and for teaching all of us who are listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.